Hello, I'm Dr. Neil Skolnick, and I'd like to welcome you to the Infectious Diseases Society of America's Hepatitis C Knowledge Network podcast series. Today, we'll be listening to Dr. Kristen Marks, MD, Assistant Professor of Medicine, Division of Infectious Diseases, Will Cornell Medical College, discussing hepatitis C in HIV co-infected persons. Welcome to the IDSA Hepatitis Knowledge Network series. Today's topic is treatment of HIV, HCV co-infected patients provided by Dr. Kristen Marks. Before I hand over the presentation to Dr. Marks, I just wanted to cover some information. Firstly, a disclaimer. Any diagnostic or therapeutic recommendations and all opinions expressed during the IDSA Hepatitis C Knowledge Network are those of the presenter only. Do not necessarily represent the views of IDSA. The webinar attendee must use their own independent professional judgment in making clinical decisions. The webinar attendee assumes all risks in using the information provided. The IDSA Hepatitis C Knowledge Network is in full compliance with HIPAA, IDSA will bear no legal liability for resulting use of the information provided during the webinar. The IDSA Hepatitis C Knowledge Network takes place roughly every month and is an hour-long webinar series with the intent of educating IDSA members on current recommended practices to treat and manage patients infected with the hepatitis C virus. It provides information on the critical knowledge topics to effectively identify, treat, and manage HCV. It's also an opportunity for attendees to interact with HCV experts discussing issues related to complex patient care and effective treatment. Um, you're all, you'll all be able to submit questions in advance as well as during the webinar. The webinar series is provided with support from an unrestricted educational grant from Vertex, Merck, and Gilead. Um, the last item before the presentation is how we handle questions and answers. Following the lecture, Dr. Marks will address questions concerning the presentation and general clinical questions regarding treatment and management of HCV patients. Um, we do not have any pre-submitted webinar questions this time, so Dr. Marks will start off with questions that are posed during the webinar via the chat function or questions functions located in the GoToWebinar control panel. When posing your questions, please ask in the form of a hypothetical case rather than putting the expert in an awkward position asking for advice. We will stop the recording of the webinar when we take general questions not necessarily related to the presentation. The webinar is archived on the IDSA website and should be available for viewing next week. With that said, Dr. Marks, I will turn it over to you. Hi everyone, thanks for joining me on a Friday afternoon. Um, if you don't, if you have any problems hearing me in these first few slides, let me know, just send a message. So today in the next 20, 30 minutes, I'm going to cover in the lecture part of this some important topics that I think are, that you um, should be familiar with when managing co-infected patients, particularly when um, using DAAs. 
So uh, first of all, just kind of what therapies are available currently and um, are appropriate to use in co-infected persons. We're going to focus on peginefuron, ribavirin, sofosbuvir, and semeprovir, as I don't think there's really any role at this point for telepravir and bocepravir. We'll talk about how to treat patients, particularly important considerations of using these direct-acting antivirals in co-infected patients. This um, primarily has to do with drug interactions. And then also kind of who to treat now with interferon-based or, or, or currently available all-oral therapies, and who should wait for what's next. Those will be the main topics I'll try to hit in the next 20 minutes. But first, I'm going to give you my Hep C Treatment 101. And um, if you're familiar with HIV therapy, you're pretty much already familiar with Hep C therapy because it's a lot of the same targets in the viral life cycle. So there are um, both protease inhibitors and polymerase inhibitors that can either be nukes or non-nukes. Um, and there's also another class that's NS5A inhibitors that is different than in HIV, this class doesn't exist. It really targets a step uh, or a part of the replication unit. It's not entirely clear how they work, but it's known that they kind of um, inhibit that or are important in inhibiting uh, RNA replication. I'm also going to give you my, my simple way of remembering what drugs are which. And this is the part of the lecture that I, um, when people usually tell me they remember this part of the lecture above anything else. So I will tell you it's a little silly, but for protease inhibitors, they, they all end in Previr. So you see the PR for Previr and the PR for protease inhibitors. So today I'll talk about Semeprevir. For polymerase inhibitors, they all end in Buvir. And I remember this by thinking base pairs are important in uh, RNA replication. And that base pair kind of sounds like Buvir. That one's a little bit of a loose association, I know, but it works for me. Um, and like I said, they can either be nukes or non-nukes. The only one approved right now is sofosbuvir, but there are others coming. Um, and then lastly, there are the NS5A inhibitors, and they all end in asvir. And I remember that as AS looks like 5A backwards. So those are decladosphere and ledivosphere, which are coming. There aren't any yet approved, so I won't spend a lot of time talking about them during the lecture part. But if you would like, I could cover them in the question and answer session. A main kind of important concept to know about treating hep C in the era of DAAs is that in studies done to date of using direct-acting antivirals, when you line them up against studies that were done in people who don't have HIV, so in hep C mono-infected patients, in the light blue and in the dark blue you see co-infected patients, when you line up sort of the similar study, it appears that HIV-infected patients do just as well with these drugs. Um, now, of course, there's little differences in the way the studies were conducted and probably the population that was enrolled, and they weren't sort of like, you know, actually the same studies, but just kind of roughly lining them up, you see there isn't this big drop-off like we saw with interferon-based treatment um, in, for HIV co-infected patients. So it's probably pretty fair to extrapolate results you see in hep C mono-infected patients to co-infected patients and, and use some of those same therapies, even if they hadn't been studied um, to date in co-infected patients. I think the main issue with doing that, of course, is knowing the drug interactions. Um, so to kind of get at who, who to treat now, and the, the people who I would certainly treat now are people with advanced fibrosis. And in this slide, I'm showing you um, some um, data about how likely a person with advanced liver disease is to decompensate over time. 
And I think you can see my arrow as well. So I'm showing with the arrow that over a kind of a four to five year period um, in people who were diagnosed with fibrosis by liver biopsy, you see about you know, 15 to 20 percent of will have decompensated by five years kind of from that baseline assessment. Whereas um, another way of looking at, which we use now more commonly, is the fibroscan, which is a transient elastography, a way of a non-invasive way of categorizing fibrosis. And in this, they categorize people as having sort of an intermediate you know, fibrosis versus advanced fibrosis being greater than 14. And you can see the decompensation rates were even higher. So people who fall in this category of advanced fibrosis, I would initiate treatment ideally immediately if possible. And what are sort of the minimum things you need to know pre-treatment? Well, of course you need to know the genotype and subtype. That's going to affect the treatment you give and we'll, we'll talk about the different treatments that are recommended for each genotype and subtype. The stage of fibrosis, um, and particularly I think at this point just knowing cirrhosis, yes or no, is, is probably most important. And if they're if they have cirrhosis, whether it's compensated or not, because decompensated patients you need to, to treat differently and probably should be treated by a you know, person who is expert in sort of managing decompensated patients. Um, how do I, I determine, like I said, you can use liver biopsy, but it's probably not as important now. You, there's also other methods such as FibroScan and the non-invasive testing as well, such as the FibroSure. Um, imaging can also, of course, be useful, and also physical exam. Never want to forget. Um, I, you need to know the prior treatment they got. Were they naive to any Hep C treatment, or did they take interferon in the past were and were intolerant, or were they a non-responder? Have they received a direct-acting antiviral already, and if so, what class? Um, other medications are crucial for our co-infected patients in terms of drug-drug interactions, and we'll talk a little bit more about those. And then sort of interferon eligibility or willingness or tolerance, um, and that is important in terms of, you know, um, not doing any harm with interferon. And lastly, the childbearing potential of the patient and their partner, particularly if you're going to use ribavirin, which is a known teratogen. So with that kind of brief intro, um, I'm going to focus on um, talking about the treatments that are recommended in the latest IDSA, ASLD, IAS, USA sanctioned guidelines. I was part of this committee and the goal of this was really to make a live working document that is updated in real time and can inform you of, um, for, in terms of recommendations for testing, managing, and treating hepatitis C. It's found at hcvguidelines.org, and I hope you all will, if you haven't already seen it, will have a chance to take a look at it. Um, and so anything, you know, any questions that you're sort of left with after this webinar, I think by going here and, and looking at the different categories, you may be able to address um, many of them related to treatment. Sort of the coming soon parts are who and when to initiate treatment, and then monitoring on treatment. There's also a section coming on acute hep C. So today I'm going to focus on obviously co-infection and that's in the unique patient population category. Um, I borrowed these slides from John Fairgun who made these for the New York, New Jersey AATC uh, and he nicely summarized on one slide what the guidelines said. That's why I, I like them in terms of the treatment. So I'm going to start off with genotype 2, not because it's most common, it's actually uh, genotype 1 is the most common in the United States, but it's the simplest. So we're going to start simple and then it gets a little more complicated, but it, you'll see it really doesn't get that complicated anymore. Things are becoming much easier in terms of Hep C treatment. So for genotype 2, um, 
it's very straightforward. And so all patients, regardless of whether they've ever been treated for hep C or not, it's recommended they get sofosbuvir and ribavirin uh, for 12 weeks. There is a little caveat that if they're a prior non-responder and have cirrhosis, they may benefit from extension of treatment to 16 weeks. That hasn't been proven yet, but it's sort of in some studies in mono-infected, if you just sort of numerically compare, 16 weeks looks a little bit better. So particularly if someone was sort of slow to respond or something I consider in that, that situation extending to 16 weeks. I'm going to show you the data for where this recommendation came from over the next few slides. Um, but just to cover the rest of the slide, in yellow are sort of alternative treatments that are possible. Um, in red are the not recommended. But really in green are the recommended um, treatments. And there's only, you know, it's hard for me to even come up with situations where I may use one of the alternatives. And I would um, and, and the not recommended are really not recommended either because there's no efficacy in this, for, for instance, with telepravir and bosepravir um, or no data or that we actually thought they were, could be potentially more toxic than the other therapies. So you should actually um, avoid those. So then the next simplest is genotype 3, where the recommendation is uh, sofosbuvir and ribavirin. And by, um, in parentheses, it says WB. That means weight-based therapy. So 1,000 milligrams if they're less than 75 kilograms or 1,200 milligrams per day if they're above 75 kilograms. That's divided into twice-a-day dose, dosing. It's given for 24 weeks. Um, you can see in yellow there is an alternative regimen of sofosbuvir with pegylated interferon and weight-based ribavirin for 12 weeks. And that's based on some data in mono-infected patients that that um, may be a, a good regimen, particularly, again, for those treatment-experienced cirrhotic or treatment-experienced patients. However, I think most people would rather avoid sofosbuvir, and sofosbuvir and ribavirin for 24 weeks um, is, allows you to avoid interferon and is um, the recommended regimen. So let me show you the data for these two regimens, for genotype 2 and genotype 3. So the data for co-infected patients comes from this study called the Photon Study. And it was a study of over 200 patients. And what I like about this study is it sort of tried to have real-world criteria for allowing um, eligibility. Um, they allowed cirrhosis, and they didn't have any platelet cutoff. Um, they did have some restrictions on hemoglobin and um, creatinine clearance, and it's important to note with sofosbuvir, you must have a creatinine clearance above 30 to be able to use it at this point. But they also allowed a wide range of antiretroviral regimens. Um, when using sofosbuvir, it's really only to pranivir that you cannot use, and so it it wasn't as limited as many of other studies are in terms of antiretroviral regimens. And people who were on therapy did have to have undetectable HIV RNA, and, but you could also be on no antiretrovirals and if patients had a CD4 count above 500. However, most of them who ended the study were on antiretrovirals. So what were the response, responses for people who with genotype 2 and 3 with this regimen? Oh, and just to go back, you can see for genotype 2 and 3 um, in green, People who were treatment naive got 12 weeks, whereas the treatment experienced people got 24 weeks, which this varies a little different from what you remember I just told you were the recommendations, but I'll go over that in just a minute. So 12 weeks for the treatment naive, 24 weeks for the treatment experienced, everybody got sofosbuvir or ribavirin. So for the treatment naive, let's start here on the right. For genotype 2, the um, SVR rates were 88%. 
So look very good and very similar to what's been seen in mono-infected patients. For genotype 3, 12-week response rates, 67% aren't bad, but they're not as good as what has been seen with 24 weeks in mono-infected. And what was seen with 24 weeks over here in green with the treatment experienced. Therefore, that's why the, the guidelines say to use 24 weeks for genotype 3, whereas you can use 12 weeks for genotype 2. Now note, what was actually studied for treatment experienced was 24 weeks. However, extrapolating again from mono-infected patients, um, the guidelines and the FDA came out saying uh, 12 weeks is, is likely enough for treatment experienced patients with genotype 2, with that caveat of extending to 16 weeks in people who were treatment experienced and cirrhotic if, um, it, you know, if the provider kind of giving the provider that option or that um, consideration. What, what about the people who, who weren't successfully treated? So there weren't that many of them, thankfully. There were more in the genotype 3 for 12 weeks. And as you'll see in red, I've sort of highlighted the various um, potential outcomes. So in the treatment naive, the um, virologic failures were primarily relapses for that genotype 3, and that's usually what you'll see with cefospivir and ribavirin, and it's rare to have on-treatment breakthrough. And you worry about on-treatment breakthrough, of course, because that's usually associated with resistance, we know, whereas relapse less likely uh, is associated with resistance. And that's one of the strengths of using cefospivir and ribavirin is that there isn't much breakthrough. And um, actually, when they caref carefully looked at these two breakthroughs that were seen, um, one was genotype 1 and one was genotype 2, it was found that actually both patients were probably non-adherent to cefospivir, and that was confirmed by PK analysis. So in other words, the patients who were actually taking cefospivir and ribavirin all got undetectable, and if the treatment didn't work, it didn't work because they relapsed. And safety um, is also um, was for for compared to interferon-based treatment quite good, but you can see there still were a lot of adverse events. Most of them being fatigue, but there were also some things like insomnia and irritability that I think a lot of times we used to sort of attribute it to interferon, but maybe some of them actually have been being caused by ribavirin. Um, you can see the serious sort of down here in red. Adverse events were rare. Um, and the treatment discontinuation was also quite rare, although there were some, some treatment, you know, some treatment did sometimes have to be discontinued, and the reasons are indicated on that slide before. There was one death, in, but it was a suicide sort of shortly after the patient entered. So overall, this treatment appears to be safe. Um, you know, the main side effect I, I still see when using it is anemia, and, and um, the most experts feel that the way to manage anemia seen with the ribavirin as part of this therapy is to dose reduce ribavirin, not kind of, you don't need to um, try to keep the ribavirin on full dose and give EPO. Um, there are situations where I have had to give EPO if the anemia is very severe, even with dose reduction, but in general, dose reduction is all you need to do for most patients. So what about the drug interactions with sofosbuvir? So the, really the only um, problem that you may run into is with PGP inducers. So those are things like St. John's wort, dilantin, carbamazepine. Um, these can significantly decrease sofosbuvir levels, and that's um, because of the absorption of sofosbuvir in the gut. So those the only main problem. Topiravir is also one of the drugs that can do that, and that's the only antiretroviral you cannot use with. Um, sofosbuvir, and I don't think many patients are out there on topiravir at this point, but if there is someone on it, 
um, you should not co-administer it with sofosbuvir. This is another um, couple of slides I borrowed from John Farragut from the New York, New Jersey AHC where he summarized all the antiretrovirals and whether or not um, co-administration would be recommended and kind of the data sort of behind that. Um, so you can see with sofosbuvir, most HIV medications get the green light. Now, genotype 1, a little more complicated, but we're going to try to keep it simple here. So for interferon, we'll start with interferon-eligible patients at the top. But when you're thinking about genotype 1, you actually want to kind of think into two, two categories. Are they treatment naive? Or are they treatment experienced? If they're treatment experienced, were they relapsers or were they non-responders? So the relapsers sort of get um, lumped with the treatment naive patients because they're interferon sensitive. They've shown you that they got undetectable when you used interferon in the past. And then you also want to think about, um, so treatment naive, treatment experience, interferon eligible or not interferon eligible. So we'll start with the treatment naive patients and I'll start with those who are interferon eligible. Most of the data about using um, the preferred regimen, which is sofosbuvir with peginterferon and ribavirin for 12 weeks, and I'll briefly mention the alternate regimens, zimeprevir, um, and for 12 weeks, but along with PEG and RIBA for 24 weeks. Um, so most of that data about the cefosbuvir with PEG and RIBA comes from mono-infected. And you've probably seen this published in the New England Journal, the neutrino study where they gave um, over, you know, close to 300 patients with genotype 1 um, this regimen and had cure rates approaching 90%. And, um, I do want to highlight if you have kind of multiple bad prognostic factors, the cure rates were as low as 70%. For instance, those with genotype 1, advanced um, fibrosis, non-CC, high viral load. And those are a lot of the people I'm treating right now. So I just kind of like to keep that in mind. It's almost 20% less if, in terms of if you're, you're deciding whether or not to use this regimen right now. Um, you know, I would have some pause about that. And then what's the data in co-infected patients? Well, in terms of studies, there's really only been this one small study of 23 patients. And it did include genotype 1 as well as some other genotypes, but most of the patients were genotype 1. And the response rates look similar. It was about 90%. And there were just two who did not um, have an SVR. One relapsed and one had discontinued early. So it seems, again, you know, sort of treatment responses in co-infected are similar. Not a big study, but um, you know, it doesn't show any sort of alarm in terms of using that regimen. What about peginterferon ribavirin with sumeprevir? Um, so that study um, also showed pretty good response rates, 79% in the naives, 87% in the relapsers. However, you know, you, having to use 24 or even 48 weeks of interferon at this point is just not ideal when you have the option of using pegribe and sofosbuvir for just 12 weeks. So in terms of an interferon, based regimen, this is why this got put into the alternative, not the recommended category. I um, want to highlight, though, that I think I personally have hopefully written my last interferon prescription. Um, and I, the reason that I'm using less interferon is really because the people who <clears throat> I need to treat most urgently, who can't afford to wait for some of the, the drugs that are coming that are all oral-based treatments for genotype 1 tend to be the people who are either interferon ineligible or I feel there is some risk to giving interferon. So they um, 
are sort of on the verge of decompensation or quite advanced cirrhosis, and I just don't feel that comfortable. Or maybe they have other comorbidities, renal, et cetera, and I think interferon is just too toxic. So I, there's a rare situations now where I actually am in treating someone who's in sort of that category of interferon eligible and um, with genotype 1 who I'm not going to wait for newer therapies for. And I'd be happy to talk more about that during the question and answer. So what do we need by interferon ineligible? You can read the slide yourself, but there's, um, you know, being intolerant. Um, again, decompensated hepatic disease is a very important reason not to give interferon. People can either decompensate or have serious infections. There's been excess deaths when it's given. Um, even when you looked at sort of studies of cirrhotic patients with interferon-based therapies with the DAA, the people who have low albumins and lower platelets tended to have more of these complications, and I would avoid it in those as well. And then there, the cytopenias and other things listed here. And I don't think this, um, this list is all inclusive. There's other reasons as well, but this kind of highlights some of the important common ones that we would avoid interferon. So if we're going to put someone in the interferon ineligible category, what are our treatment options? If they're treatment naive, then it's sofosbuvir and ribavirin for 24 weeks or cefosbuvir and semeprevir with or without ribavirin for 12 weeks. There's no data actually in co-infected patients on this treatment that I'm aware of. However, I'll tell you a little bit of the data from mono-infected. If someone's treatment experienced, um, regardless of their interferon eligibility, the best treatment is probably the cefosbuvir and semeprevir. Unfortunately, it's just hard to, um, a lot of people's ARVs, as we'll talk about in a minute, are incompatible with semeprevir. So if you can't give this, and your, the patient's treatment experienced, um, the best categories are probably for interferon eligible, the SOF and the PEG-RIBA, or if they're ineligible, the SOF-RIBA for 24 weeks. So there's no data on giving this. There's some modeling um, from the FDA. Um, and there, um, however, there is data on this in treatment naive co-infected patients or treatment-naive co-infected patients with genotype 1, so I'll show you that. Um, so going on, so what is the data on the sofosbuvir and ribavirin for 24 weeks in genotype 1 patients? So the data is shown here, and it, um, just to remind you of the study design again, there were about 114 patients for 24 weeks. Um, if they were genotype 1 and treatment-naive, they were eligible. And then the same eligibility criteria I talked about when we talked about the photon study design before. To kind of show you again what I meant by this sort of being a real-world population, um, the study breakdown, there, the average age was 48. They were mostly men. Um, there was a fair amount of black and Hispanic patients. And most were genotype 1A, which is what I tend to see in my clinical practice. Most were non-CC. And um, there was only a relatively few patients with cirrhosis, so keep that in mind when you're thinking about, you know, using this. And most of them, like we said, were on ART, and they actually had quite good CD4 counts above 600. So the overall response rate for using soft and ribavirin for 24 weeks in genotype 1 was 75%. And when you look at it a little closer, almost everybody, and everybody at this time point, was undetectable on treatment. And so the failures were really because of relapse. And um, 22 out of the 23 failures actually were because of relapse. The one breakthrough, as I showed you before, was a patient who was uh, non-adherent to cefosbuvir that they confirmed that by the PK analysis. So uh, um, 
in terms of choosing this regimen, if it doesn't work, resistance isn't a usual downside of this regimen. In other words, if they fail, they fail by relapse, and they don't have resistance as a general rule, at least of the study. So kind of when picking which patients I might give this to, this data is not from mono-infected patients, and it actually includes people who got either SOF and ribavirin or SOF and PEG-RIBA. This was something just presented at EASL that I thought was really interesting. If you kind of take a multivariate regression of all the possible, you know, things that may affect SVR rates, they found that six were independently associated with relapsing on this regimen. And they're not surprising things. They're things that have been seen before. And then they kind of add up how many of those you can have before it affects your SVR. And I think the, you know, it starts to, you start to see the dip after three. Um, and again, these are things we may you know, see commonly in our patients um, who we're treating with co-infection. Although I, I don't believe they included the mono or the co-infected patients in this study. It was kind of from all their phase one and phase two, but I'm not sure if they actually included the co-infected patients. So it's probably just mono-infected patients. Um, if any of you in the audience know whether the co-infected patients were included, please chime in. But at any way, I kind of use this as a mental sort of uh, gestalt of, you know, predicting who might not do as well with the sulfosbuvir ribavirin for 24 weeks. And if they have all of those, they're probably down in more like the 50-50 range rather than that 75% range. So ideally, someone like that, you would want to use sofosbuvir and semeprovir, either with or without ribavirin, if you're going for an all-oral therapy. Um, and this is the data on kind of the SVR12 response when you break it down by subtype and the Q80K mutation. So you may know this Q80K mutation in the virus <clears throat> predicts uh, not responding to PEG interferon, ribavirin, and semeprovir, and probably has some impact even on this sofosbuvir-semeprovir combination. And so if you just sort of looked at over on the left underneath Cosmo Kramer, because every time I see Cosmos, I, for some reason, he pops into my head. If you look over there, um, the SVR12 rates in the study overall, when you look at the intention to treat, were 90 to 95%. If you look at each individual arm, because some arms had ribavirin, some did not, some got 12 weeks, some got 24 weeks. The lowest was 79%, and the best was 100%. So, um, pretty, you know, good responses in all the arms. And it, it wasn't um, at all clear that adding ribavirin made a difference to this, these response rates. So that's why we, the guidelines say use phosphorus mepper either with, with or without ribavirin. What I know what many people do in practice is if the person has a Q80K mutation, they'll often throw ribavirin in. But there's really no data in on doing that. I happen to do it, but it's just sort of a matter of a, you know, opinion. I think it might help. But if a person runs into ribavirin toxicity, I feel comfortable taking it off. Or if they have a, a reason they can't take ribavirin, I'll take it off. So the overall, though, if you kind of look by each of these categories, so you can see genotype 1B patients do very well with this regimen, and 100% were cured regardless of whether um, they were in this cohort 1, which was more of the um, treatment experience patients, or cohort two, which was the more advanced fibrosis patients. And, um, they, and then genotype 1A, if there was no Q80K, also did very well. It appears maybe with the Q80K, they did a little bit worse. Um, but you know, still, response rates 90% or higher. So it looks like a very good regimen. The main issue with using this regimen, as I've said a couple times, is that semeprovir has a lot more in the way of drug interactions. So what are these drug interactions about? Well, 
it's because of the CYP3A4 pathway. And I think everybody who's done anything with HIV is familiar with these types of drug interactions. When it comes to semeprevir, it's really more of a victim than a perpetrator. So its levels are lowered more than it really affects other drug levels. Um, and what you worry about is things that induce the CYP3A4 will lower um, semeprevir levels, things like efavirenz, and things that um, inhibit will increase the levels, so things like um, you know, HIV, like ritonavir. So the ARV options that you have are listed here. You really can't use the HIV protease inhibitors, and that's you know, a bummer for some of our patients with advanced liver disease who also have been through multiple HIV regimens and often land on a protease inhibitor. So um, this is, again, from the New York, New Jersey HC, these sort of summary slides about semeprovir and what HIV medications are allowed and the reasons that I'll kind of let you look through on your own. But um, the ones that are allowed with semeprovir are also some of the ones that kind of some of the newer agents are also allowed with, the agents that are in development. So if you have the option right now of getting your co-infected patients on a regimen that has two nukes and ropivirine, two nukes and dolutegravir, two nukes and raltegravir, um, those are sort of the best options for patients in terms of not having drug interactions. Um, Maravirac could be something to supplement with or infubertide. I know most patients would, um, would not like that. And in general, the nukes are not a problem. So, um, so again, to summarize, if you can do two nukes plus ral or dal or vulpivirine, um, the people trying to treat the hepatitis C will love you. So why, you know, with all that data, so why did I say I'm, you know, waiting on most of the genotype 1 patients who are um, not, do not have advanced disease? The genotype 2 and 3 I will treat now, but the genotype 1 with mild disease I would definitely hold on treatment, and that's because we anticipate easier regimens. So I'm showing you kind of uh, what HIV treatments looked like over the years. So 1996 was very complicated. We're down to three. Um, now we have three choices for one pill once a day. Hep C is going the same direction. This is when Hep C was kind of at its most complicated, which was as recently as last year when you were using telepravir with interferon and having side effects. And now it looks like there, there, we hope there will be approval. I don't see why there would not be of a one pill once a day regimen for Hep C later this year. And that um, is Sofosbuvir or Lodiposphere, which I'm just, here's a summary of the data um, from their phase three studies. Um, they've studied it in people who are treatment naive, treatment experienced, including people who have cirrhosis, including people who had resistance to PIs or prior experience with PIs. And kind of across the board, the response rates are, seem to be above 90%. So it's definitely a great option for people who can afford to wait for treatment. That is the end of my lecture part of the discussion. I'm really excited to take questions. So um, I put my email here if you also want to send me individual questions um, at a later date or as you're managing patients. So Danielle, any questions for me? You may now submit questions uh, to Dr. Marks via your chat or question function. Oh, yeah, here's that. We already have one question in. Okay. 
think I was supposed to show this too. I'll put this up while we. Okay, now I see the questions. Hold on, give me one second. For some reason, they're really small and I can't see them. Okay, so the question is, when treating genotype 3 with sofosbuvir and rivavirin, would you continue for the full 24 weeks regardless of hep C viral load at 12 weeks or other time points? So, um, you know, is there a role for sort of response-guided therapy with sofosbuvir and rivavirin for genotype 3? So the answer is you need to continue for 24 weeks. Um, pretty much with this treatment, everybody will be undetectable by week four or definitely by week eight. They might be sort of right on the verge of undetectable by week four. And in fact, if they're not, they're probably not taking it. You should probably discontinue it because of poor adherence. So the, um, but because the way people mostly fail is by relapse, you really, there's no on-treatment um, signal that this is a person who's going to relapse at 12 or 16 or 24 weeks that we know of yet. You know, maybe there is something that a biomarker or something that just hasn't been discovered yet. But as of right now, with the data we have, you essentially have to treat all genotype 3 for 24 weeks. So good question. Any other questions? Any questions about the newer drugs? Okay, now I'm seeing a question. Um, okay, I did not get last single daily pill regimen. Are drugs other than sofosbuvir? Are there drugs other than? I think they're asking, are there other drugs that are coming similar to sofosbuvir um, that are going to be? once a day, if I understand the question. If I didn't understand the question, please ask it again. So of the regimens that are coming, I think people are trying to formulate them into being a, at least one pill or possibly once or twice a day, you know, just because of now they have to compete with sofosbuvir lidiposphere. But the one that will be here first, most likely, is the combination of sofosbuvir with lidiposphere. And so that's a will be a one pill once a day. It's actually probably going to be approved to use without even having to use ribavirin with it. And um, it's, it'll be probably approved for either eight or 12 weeks um, because both had good response rates. You know, maybe it'll be 12 weeks for cirrhotics. Who knows? Eight weeks for other groups. We'll see. But um, it'll likely be just the one pill for 12 weeks. The only pro kind of problem in kind of applying that to our co-infected patients is that the studies that are being done have included, they haven't allowed PIs. So they've had a backbone of tenofovir FTC for the HIV regimen, and they've given it either with RAL or Rilpivirine or dolutegravir. 
I think those are, oh, or, or Fabron, so a triplet was allowed as well. So um, the reason they didn't allow protease inhibitors was that uh, the protease inhibitors increase tenofovir levels, and so, do, so does lidiposphere. So there wasn't actually a direct interaction between lidiposphere, the second drug that's part of that, and the protease inhibitors. It's sort of more this indirect, they both affect tenofovir. So once it's approved, I'm not sure, you know, whether people are going to feel comfortable using it in people who are on protease inhibitors. I think probably that needs to be studied further. Okay, so I have a question, another question. Can I please go over the HIV protease inhibitor and hep C treatment drug interactions? For instance, for someone on boosted reataz and Truvada who's genotype 1, what are their treatment options if they're stage 2? So that's a great question. So um, if they're stage 2, you know, so, so their treatment options right now, let's just say we've decided we want to treat them for some reason. Maybe they have cryoglobulinemia or lichen planus or they just really want their hep C treated, treated right now. So if they're on a boosted PI, your options right now um, don't include semeprovir. So we have to you know, eliminate any of the regimens we talked about that had semeprovir. So that leaves for genotype 1 either PEG-ribosifosbuvir or, or sifosbuvir-ribovirin. So it's PEG-ribosifosbuvir for 12 weeks or sifosbuvir-ribovirin for 24 weeks. And remember that the, the 24 weeks for genotype 1 was about 70%. Um, so because neither of those options for someone who only has stage 2 fibrosis, to me, aren't that appealing, you know, either having only 70% response rate, unless, you know, remember I showed you all those categories that make them more likely to have success. So if they had a really low viral load and were, you know, IL-28CC and, and all, you know, every other favorable characteristic, I might go ahead and treat them. Um, but for most people who are stage 2, I'm probably not giving them interferon at this point, although they, you know, if they don't have other comorbidities, it's very well they might tolerate it just fine. But knowing that there's other drugs that are about to be approved that would be options, I'd probably wait for those options. So I just mentioned for sofosbuvir lidiposphere, we don't have any information about using it with the boosted PI. So um, I'm not sure, you know, I think you'd have to really consider that. What has been studied and what also will probably soon be approved is um, a drug similar to lidiposphere called decladosphere. So that's another NS5A inhibitor. And it doesn't seem to have drug interactions and they allowed use with protease inhibitors. That study also is probably ongoing or just finishing up. So hopefully we'll see that data soon. And decladosphere is probably going to be approved for genotype 1B with another drug. Um, and if it gets approved for that, you know, you could consider using it, again, off-label most likely, I don't know if they're going for the indication, using it with sofosbuvir and the decladosphere as a combination. And that's a particularly good combination for co-infected patients because both of those don't have the drug interactions with the HIV protease inhibitors. So if you could use those together, that would be sort of ideal. But I think, you know, if it's not, you know, it's, I've seen at least with sofosbuvir and semeprovir, it's sometimes hard to get it if it's not an approved indication. But um, that would be probably my preferred. Okay, so next question is, what about co-infected patients, cirrhotic with prior failure to leprovir, PEG interferon, and ribavirin? So, okay, you're not making this easy on me, but let's take it. Okay, so co-infected, cirrhotic, failed PEG ribavirin. And, you know, the cirrhotics didn't do as well with PEG-ribotilaprovir, particularly if they had had PEG-riba before. So there are quite a bit of these people out there. 
So um, how do you deal with PI failures, cirrhotic or not? Um, it's not recommended to give or it's not recommended to give semeprevir as part of the regimen because if you failed teleprevir or bosepravir, you probably failed it with breakthrough and have those protease inhibitor resistance mutations, at least at the time of failure, that would also predict failure with semeprevir. Um, although over time they do become less and you know even potentially go away if you look at kind of the long-term history of those mutations. So it might be possible to use those again. Um, however, that's, you know, there's no data on that, so it's not recommended to take that strategy. So then it becomes using a cefosbuvir-based regimen. So again, your options are pegribosofosbuvir for 12 weeks or sofosbuvir-ribavirin for 24 weeks. And depending, you know, I, I, I've used both. Um, I'm not crazy, again, about using interferon in someone who's failed interferon, particularly numerous times and has cirrhosis. I worry about decompensation. I worry about doing harm. So I tend to go personally with the cefosbuvir ribavirin for 24 weeks. And the reason I do that is I think I can get them undetectable with it, at least for the next six months. They might relapse. If they're right on the verge of decompensation, you might want to even you know, treat them like a decompensated, tr treating them longer if you if you can get it for longer. I've had good luck getting sofosbuvir ribavirin. You know, it's an approved indication, so I have good luck getting it from insurance companies. Um, if you could use semeprevir, oh no, we just already said we couldn't use semeprevir. So yeah, so I would probably so it comes down to those two regimens, and the soft riba for 24 weeks is probably what I'm using more often, knowing that you know fair amount, maybe even 50%, are going to relapse. But I feel like I've watched too many cirrhotics, you know, just sitting around doing nothing, watch them either decompensate or get liver cancer, and I would rather try this, which is, I think, you know, if I had to estimate about a 50-50 chance, and probably not do any harm, because when they, if they are to fail it, they're going to fail by relapse, and they're not going to be resistant to sofosbuvir. And so you'll be able to come back in with another regimen, probably in the future, that will again have sofosbuvir, and hopefully a different class, like an NS5A. The, um, these patients will do very well with sofosbuvir and an NS5A inhibitor like Ticladsvir or Lodiposvir. So if you can get that for them somehow through compassionate use, if they're really sick, or you know, or consider just just waiting. But I I'm not real comfortable with waiting another six months. Although probably sofosbuvir Lodiposvir will be approved um, hopefully in October. So it's getting closer and closer. So, for the Infectious Diseases Society of America, I am Dr. Neil Skolnick, and I hope you have continued to find the Hepatitis C Knowledge Network webinar podcast series useful and continue to check back for further topics.